This is a podcast for Functional Ecology, a British Ecological Society publication. Hello, this is the Functional Ecology podcast, and I'm here speaking to Terry Williams, who is wildlife physiologist and professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And we're talking about uh, the first ever Kalo Grace review in functional ecology. Uh, these are annual reviews. They're really forward-looking and by invitation only. And um, I'm really pleased that uh, Terry agreed to write our first Kalo Grace review. And the title is Hunters versus Hunted, New Perspectives on the Physiological Costs of Survival at the Top of the Food Chain. So hello, Terry. Hi, Emma, and thank you, everybody, for the opportunity to talk to you. Um, you've been working on mammalian predator physiology for 30 years now. How, how did it all start? <laughs> I am that old. Um, you know, the funny thing is, I can tell you just about the moment that it all started. And it was when I was 12 years old. And I had a copy of Life magazine that had just come out, and it was a photo journal or journal about the big cats of Africa. And I saw that, and I said, "That's what I'm going to do with my life. Somehow, I'm going to study big animals, especially African lions, and that will be um, sort of my life." I didn't really know what kind of biology I was going to do, but it all started with just looking at pictures in a magazine. Okay. Did, did you actually get to work with African lions in the end? You know, the funny thing on that one, too, is that it took me my entire career. I worked on them just in the last couple of years. I finally, finally did it. And it was it was a remarkable experience to go from 12 years old to... I'm not going to tell you how old now. <laughs> um, and then be in Kenya with your your first lion and say, I finally, I finally did it. <laughs> Fantastic. So, yeah, I guess um, in general, working with apex predators sounds really exciting and rather dangerous. Um, can you tell me what was the most interesting thing that's happened to you or the most interesting thing you've seen during your field work? All right, I'm going to give you a choice here just because we have short time. So there's two stories. One is about that first lion that we did put our wildlife collars on. And then the other one is a story about um, a narwhal and an iPhone. Which one do you want to hear? Uh, the narwhal and the iPhone. <laughs> Okay, so this is a story we were working in Greenland, and the way that we work with narwhals is um, the animals are actually uh, have been in a hunter's net, and we're trying to release the animal out of the net, and in the process, uh, we will put on some of our instrumentation, and my instrumentation is a heart rate monitor for, for narwhals. And the other thing that I'm doing is I am looking at skin temperatures. So I have a little infrared kind of uh, monitor and it shows pictures on my iPhone that are the hot spots or cold spots on the, the skin of the animal and whether they're losing heat or overheating and that kind of thing. 
So I'm standing in water up to my chest next to the narwhal, and I have this iPhone, and I've put on my little heart rate monitor, but I'm just helping to control the animal, and it starts to move. And so here's this this whale. I mean, it's a 1,500-kilogram whale in front of me, and there are people around me and around the sides of the whale, and they say, well, well, hold on to him. Hold on to his tusk. (laughs) I'm like... And it was a surreal moment to be standing there holding this this tusk of this wild animal, and it's big. It's it you know it's the size of I, I couldn't even put my hand all the way around it. And all of a sudden, the whale starts to roll, and it starts rolling towards me. And my foot is now under the body of the whale, and I'm thinking. I'm going to to drown that that it's going to roll so far it's going to put me underwater and nobody will be able to push it off. And so I you know had to push the animal back try to get my foot out I do but in the process the iPhone goes underwater. And the animal splashes this thing and I'm thinking I've lost all the data all the data that I had recorded on heart rate and on the skin temperatures was in that phone and it's got salt water dripping out of it. So I, uh, it was useless for the rest of the expedition, but I actually wrote to the CEO of Apple and told him that a narwhal had eaten my iPhone and can we get the data off of it? And I did. It cost me some money, but we got the data off. So the narwhal almost killed the study. And me. <laughs> that's uh, yeah, that's that's a pretty amazing story for field work and field work. And it just seems like it happens. There's always something, you know. But it's it is exciting, and uh, you know, I would much rather have those challenges than um, having a bad back sitting in a lab working on molecules. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I guess that gives a really nice kind of background to the, the the sort of work that you're talking about in your review. And I I was I really enjoyed reading the review. It's not it's not the kind of work um well it has nothing to do with my own subject area. So I, I really learned a lot and I was I was very intrigued by the the role reversal that, that apex predators actually are becoming prey because of human pressures. And um and one of the things I wondered is, is you know, the review focuses on apex predators, but I was wondering if the same sort of considerations can be applied to non-apex predators, so mammals in the middle of the food chain. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And um, I think I think that people are finding these ecosystem relationships are really shifting around these days. That um, you know, we can't just always say that an animal is going to be on the top of the food chain because humans have entered into the situation. And then all these meso predators, the, the mammals and such that are in between, um, that you would consider on a lower level, there's plenty of times where now those top predators are gone, the pressures have become so great or they've moved on. And now the meso predators are having to to take over. So I think for all the members of an ecosystem, there's a couple of rules that 
we've come up with. One is everybody wants to live pretty cheaply. They want to spend the least amount of energy that they have to to make a living. And if you are going from you know meso predator to top predator, you may find that your whole energy balance has has completely been disrupted. Um, and the other side of it is it's not a good idea to get eaten. And so you really see how the behaviors of animals are geared towards who's above you and who's going to eat you and how much energy are you going to have to expend to avoid that, that process. So yeah, I mean, we're seeing entire ecosystems disrupted by this, even though we've just been focusing on the very top. And one other thing really, really struck me um, in the review, and this, this might be quite trivial, but I have to ask, how on earth do you get an apex predator on a treadmill? <laughs> okay, first people have to understand why we're doing it. It's the reason we've got um, things like polar bears and grizzly bears and lions on, on treadmills is we need to know, we, we need to calibrate our instrumentation. So these are animals wearing an accelerometer collar. We're able to record each footfall um, of the animal, but we need to know how much energy they expend for each movement that they make. So the treadmill is to give us the oxygen consumption of the animal. We convert that to energy. We correlate that with what the collar is telling us, and then we deploy the collar out in the field. And we can say, ah, oh, it's costing a lion this much energy to move you know, a kilometer or 10 kilometers or run away from, from humans. So that's why we're doing it. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, and most people are not crazy enough to do it. But the trick is to have very good animal behaviorists or trainers working with you, a very tolerant animal who doesn't care about people being around, a big metabolic box, so a plexiglass box that's as big as whatever animal you're looking at. And for a polar bear, it's a pretty darn big box, which we put on a treadmill that's big enough to hold something that weighs, you know, 300, 500 kilos. Um, and then a lot of food. <laughs> it, takes, it takes food. So in the front of the treadmill is a trainer. And there's either a glove box or a hole in our metabolic box <clears throat> that um, we feed an animal's favorite um, food through. And for the big carnivores, a lot of times, like a lion, what you're talking about is chunks of meat. So you're just feeding chunks of meat and they're like, I will, I don't care what my feet are doing. As long as you keep feeding me food, I'll just keep moving. And so it keeps the animal facing forward when the tread is going and you just work up. You know, you start with them standing there. Then you turn on the tread and, you know, they're, they're sort of wondering why they're going backwards, but they want to come up to the front to get the food and they'll start walking. And then you increase the speed. But I have a funny story about a grizzly bear on a treadmill, if you want. Go for it. <laughs> so the grizzly bears were actually part of a polar bear study and just general bears on treadmills. And for polar bears, it was pretty easy. Polar bears, if you give them um, baby food, they will walk for a long time. That was that was the favorite food on the treadmill. 
For the grizzly bears, they're more of an omnivore. So they actually loved walking on the treadmill if you gave them everything from pieces of hot dog to cookies. That's what grizzly bears like. The problem was when you give them food like that, they kept turning their heads sideways to to get the food. And I don't know why they were doing that, but they, they were changing what the dynamics of the collar. So we were getting, you know, sort of false signals from them turning their head, trying to get the food. Somebody comes up with the idea saying, well, bears, bears like honey. And we know that the bears, we've, you know, been able to train them with honey water. So we'll just put one of these little bottles of honey water on the front of the treadmill. Then they won't turn their head. So that the bear comes in and starts walking and it sees the honey water bottle and it goes crazy. It gets so mad. It's like, no, there's no walking on the treadmill for honey water. I want the cookies. I want the hot dogs. No honey water. And it wouldn't do it. It wouldn't walk for, for honey. So yeah, it takes training. <laughs> I think I think your your uh, your lab research sounds a lot more exciting than mine. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? This is a whole thing. I enjoy it so much, and you know the other half of it you know, for all the the science and the fun and the crazy stories. You know, it it is serious. It really is um, what we're seeing out in the wild and um, sort of the loss of these species. That's the hard part of it that um, we learn about these animals as individuals and and how they're built and the biology that, that drives them in the wild. And um, what we're seeing over and over again is, is the conflict, that they are built for a world that um, almost is not going to be in existence in the near future. So, yeah, there's a hard side, too. That's, that's the rough part of, of my job. Yeah, so how um, we're hearing a lot about species decline and species loss at the moment, and that it's it's always quite depressing. So, um, how can we use your kind of research to help stem losses of apex predators? Yes, I mean, the whole point of of what we're trying to do here is is basically say how is an animal built? What makes a, a lion different from a bear? what makes an Arctic animal different from a, a tropical animal. And we're, we're trying to define um, what we're calling a, a biological Achilles heel, that there are things in the biology of these animals we study that are so unique, you know, the, the essence of being a lion or a sea otter in terms of their biology. And we then compare that Achilles heel with what is happening in their environment. So for something, a simple example is, is a sea otter. Sea otter, you look at it and you go, this should not be alive. It's an animal with a fur coat trying to live in water all the time. And so you know that, that this highly specialized fur that keeps them warm is also their greatest vulnerability. That means an oil spill will wipe out a sea otter population really, really quickly. And we saw that during the Exxon Valdez spill. I worked on on that spill and, and saw the, the devastation that happens with something like that. 
Um, and it's simply because the, the animal's biology that made them able to live in a really unique way, a unique ecological niche um, was, was vulnerable or made them vulnerable. And we see that over and over again. And that's what this research is about. It's to say, you can't just have a regression on a line and say all mammals are the same or even all carnivores are the same. They're not. Everybody is built differently. And I think if we define what those limitations are, we're going to be able to define our uh, impact on them as, as humans. And if we do that, we might have a chance of saving them. Okay, thank you very much. It was, it was really great talking to you um, about your yeah, work. Thank, <laughs> thank you very much. It was a great invitation, fun writing the paper, and I, I hope people take a look at it because um, it's all about how animals are built. Yeah, I, I highly recommend it, even as a complete non-animal um, <laughs> physiologist. So <laughs> thank you so much. The highest praise indeed. <laughs>